And thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Today, we're joined by Anne Goodwin. Anne will be reading to us from and talking to us about her book, Matilda Windsor is Coming Home. Anne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Oh, wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yes. Matilda Windsor is Coming Home is about a brother and sister separated for 50 years and the idealistic young social worker who tries to reunite them. And it's about themes of prejudice, sibling support and and memories. And it's set, starts in the 1930s, and uh, the bulk of it is set in about 19... 89 from 1989 to 1991 it's set in Cumbria which is where I grew up oh I love that it was set from where you grew up yeah how delightful could you give us our first reading please indeed yes it's actually told from it's all in the third person but it's told from three different points of view so if we have time it would be quite nice for me to read a bit from each one but I'm going to start with Chapter one, and this is the main character, Matty, in, and this takes place in October 1989. The cushioned sighs, squashed by a body sinking into the seat beside her. Matty scrunches her already closed eyes. She does not care for distractions when she has a recital to prepare and never able to anticipate when she might be called on to deliver her lines, her day spools out as one continuous rehearsal. Matty's burden weighs heavily upon her, but she bears it with grace. A whiff of lavender, for this is not her mother. Matty has been deceived before. The breath is too loud, too erratic. A smoker's lungs. Matty tilts her head away. Unmoored from the monologue, she's obliged to return silently to the start. Hands folded in her lap, she conjures her mother behind closed eyelids. Mouthing the words from alongside the orchestra pit, her features contorted to magnify the shapes of the vowels. Matty smiles inwardly as confidence courses through her bloodstream. Although she can reel off the words as readily as her name, her mother's prompting spells the difference between fourth place with nothing to show for it and a silken rosette. Matty! It cannot be anything important. Her stomach signals it is too soon after luncheon for afternoon tea. Poetry pattering in her brain, she clenches her lips as if forming knots in party balloons. Matty, they'll be here shortly. Swallowing her vexation, Matty opens her eyes. A maid has a cardboard box in her arms and a small brown suitcase by her feet. Are you leaving us, dear? The maid laughs, baring her teeth, which are in tip-top condition. Remarkably so, given the lack of affordable dentistry for the lower ranks. No, but you are. They'll be coming any minute from Tuke House. Tuke House? 
Marty knows of the Palladium and the Royal Albert Hall. She knows of the Folie Berger, despite its salacious reputation. She has never heard of Duke House. Thank you, dear, but the current arrangements are tickety-boo. As the maid flashes her teeth again, Marty studies her more for a wink of precious metal. The prince gave her mother a pair of gold molars to match her wedding band. But when Mattis were due for renewal, she'd made do with plastic. We packed your things this morning, remember? Dipping into the box, the maid parades the brick back, piece by piece. A chunky book with a crucifix on the cover, a crumpled brown paper bag of chewies, a conker, a poorly composed photograph of a boy balancing the Eiffel Tower on his head. Is this one of her mother's parlour games? You're going up in the world, Matty Osborne. Intent on memorising the contents of the box, Matty failed to notice the housekeeper encroaching. Seems you're too good for us now. I am. The housekeeper is never uncertain, never wrong. If she thinks Matty is leaving, it would be unwise to contradict her. Fishing in her pocket, Matty produces a palmful of coins. Will this do for the taxi cab? Save your coppers for jelly babies, says the housekeeper. It's a five-minute hop to Tuke House. You know, the annex where the sanatorium used to be. We went for a visit yesterday, says the maid. Found your bed in the dormitory and had a cupper in the lounge. The memory roasts her cheeks. The butler, whose coarse accent and casual apparel led her to mistake him for a hall boy or porter, addled her further by asking how she took her tea. As if there were any alternative to the way it comes. You know, I remember reading this and feeling so many times I was just touched and moved and wanted so much for Maddie to have all that she longed for and all that she lost. So I'm really curious, what was the story that inspired the book? Yeah, well, I'd been, I was interested in, in identity for quite a while. And my first novel, Sugar and Smells, was about a woman with a marginalized identity. And then after a while, I realized that the starting point with my interest in, in identity was actually from my work in a long-stay hospital. So when I qualified as a clinical psychologist way back in the mid-1980s, I went to work in a psychiatric hospital, which was in the process of closing down, as, as most, oh, well, as all of them were at, at that time. And it was... I didn't quite expect the job to be how it how it was. I didn't expect to like the, the job as, as much as I did. Mm. And there were just such very interesting characters among the patients and several who'd been there for quite a lot of, of years, often for things that would seem to, to us now to be quite trivial reasons. But they were... I mean, they weren't all, I'm not wanting to paint them all as, as really, you know, lovely people, as if they were all saints there. Mm. But 
really so, some really admirable people in the way that they'd kept some parts of their personalities intact and their, their sort of spirit, human spirit, despite really sort of numbing experiences, being cut off from society and the heavy drugs that they were on. So it was really kind of, it wasn't based on one particular person, although I did meet people, sort of elderly people there, women who'd had a similar experience to Matty's in having been admitted as young women and really sort of stayed there for the for, for decades really wow. and and often treated a bit like performing not quite performing monkeys but that mm. that um there was a, a a woman that I met when I was there quite early on in my time there who the, the sister on the on the ward sort of brought her over to me and had a recite nursery rhyme and that mm. experience informs one of the scenes in the novel when something similar is happening with with Matty and I wanted to really to show because people you know often they're quite I mean mental health issues that are very common but one in four people might have a mental health problem at at any particular time but only about one in a hundred will have a major diagnosis like schizophrenia over their lifetime so often we won't unless we get we have somebody in our family or unless we work in these settings we don't get to meet them necessarily so I just wanted to show that these people I'll show that the are people like like anyone and mm-hmm. um and also that they're what we might term as madness or mental illness can be very much understood in terms of people's life experiences even if that isn't very easy for them to communicate what a lovely what a lovely cause could we have another reading please yes indeed so this is henry who's another character he's actually matilda's brother but he doesn't know where she is A no-man's land between the poles of summer and winter, Henry's birthday month, brought no excuse for celebration. Nature, never his ally at the best of times, was especially villainous in October, when weather conspired with trees to make the pavements a combat zone. Fallen leaves, wrenched from the wood by the wind, were bashed by rain and hail to a slippery sludge, causing Henry to hobble. Returning from work in the fading light, canine filth lay in ambush, camouflaged by leaf mould. The hostilities weren't solely underfoot. Mr. Glasses stole his sight, and his trilby proved a poor deterrent to conquers, bombing from horse chestnuts. From as far off as number 38, he could tell his garden gate had been left open. Not unlatched or ajar, but pushed back to a line with next door's fence. Any old Toto, Duke or Lassie could mooch in and relieve itself among the shrubs. 
the spaniel from number 51 was a prime offender. Although when Henry had managed to catch its owner, the chap had the temerity to accuse him of negligence on account of a few unmute weeds. After settling the gate between the posts, Henry approached the willows. At least autumn brought the reprieve from Irene's nagging to repair the concrete path or to sand and gloss the front door. Stepping over the threshold, he retrieved his post from the doormat, the solution to the riddle of the unclosed gate. Three brown business envelopes, the addresses typed, unlikely to have the news of his sister. Yet Henry's hopes could make a banquet out of crumbs. Henry shed his hat and coat in the hallway and made for the kitchen. Dumping the letters temporarily on the draining board, he'd snapped the heads off three matches before his hand was sufficiently ready to ignite the gas beneath the kettle. The first letter was an anticlimax. His address, some neighbour's name. Henry was damned if he'd hammer on the doors to convenience a postman too idle to secure a gate. Grabbing a biro from the drawer, he pulled down the kitchen cabinet's hinged shelf at the makeshift desk, scored two bold lines across the envelope and printed, not known at this address in between. That dealt with, he ripped into the other two envelopes. Even as he winced at the typewritten, dear Mr Windsor, he had to scan to the bottom to ensure neither carried the signature he'd waited 50 years to see. A missive from Somerset House confirmed further to your recent inquiry, there was no record of a marriage or death attached to the name Tilly Windsor. The correspondent shuttling to and fro at roughly six monthly intervals was akin to having a pen pal. Henry envisioned a homely secretary in cat's eye spectacles who would fret if he left too long a gap. Scooping dried leaves from the caddy to the brown betty, he caught himself humming. Once he'd eaten, he'd rattle off a batch of queries to provincial papers. Henry fancied tackling the Scottish islands and South Rhodesia if time allowed. Henry couldn't fathom the other letter. Linda Quinn would have walked to his desk sooner than dictator men or. He reread it while the tea brewed. He'd been stunned to be passed over on the previous head's retirement, robbed of the position by an outsider and a woman at that. But first fair, apart from her reference for computers, a source of banter between them, she'd done a decent job. Rumour had it she wouldn't stick at head of payroll, either hopping up a room to head of personnel or shearing sideways for the same title with a bigger budget at County Hall. Linda was conscientious. She wouldn't move on without nominating a successor. If she wanted to gauge Henry's interest, she was wise to do so discreetly. At 57, he had three years to make his mark before collecting his retirement clock. Despite the darkness gathering beyond his kitchen window, Henry's prospects gleamed.
Good things come in threes. He'd gain his promotion. Irene would ditch her husband. Tilly would come home. Oh, how lovely. So, you know, you told us already about the causes that you wanted to explore in the writing. So I feel like because I've told myself I can only ask three questions, I've changed that question. (laughs) And so now I'm really curious about what it's like for you to write about a place that you know. So you said you, you grew up there and then you get to write about it. And it seems like it might be kind of fun to explore a place that you know through fiction. Yes, yes, it was really nice to sort of to go back there. I did. I hadn't thought that I would, and I'm not sure why. I suppose because I'd lived more. I was more familiar with with places I'd lived as an adult. So I'd, mm. I hadn't lived in Cumbria since I was 18 when I left to go to university. And I think one of the things that it's quite a cut off kind of part of the or was a cut off part of the country and quite insular in, in some ways and but it it sort of has its it, its own culture and accent which is I've kept a bit of but um, it's my accent's changed a bit and and dialect and I quite liked being able to put a bit of Cumbrian dialect words into the into the novel, although Matty, of course, doesn't. She speaks uh, posh because she's had elocution classes as, as a child. I think more strange than going back to that, to Cumbria to write about, was quite strange to set the novel in the place that I'd worked. Well, I mean, it's a fictionalised version of, of my workplace, but it was quite, it, that was quite scary, really, because given that I knew some people who, um, who I'd worked with would read it and wondering if they'd see sort of visions of themselves in the, the pages. And in fact, I did send a copy eventually to the, to the chief executive of the hospital trust uh, oh, wow. at some point, but I haven't heard back from him oh, wow. what he thought of it. <laughs> obviously it's all it's all fiction but but I did wonder yeah I kind of did worry wonder about because it is very much kind of hoping to advocate for a positive view of mental health issues I did yeah kind of worry a bit about what people I knew would think of it and also because I didn't expect the I didn't expect the novel to have the humor I didn't go out to write Mm. it a novel that was humorous and when I first discovered that Mattie particularly her character but other characters as well was quite amusing I worried about that a bit really I, because it didn't as if I wasn't sure it, as if that would seem like it was demeaning mm. to people with mental health issues but I was being persuaded otherwise that and and what because the things that have happened to her are really quite tragic and some very unpleasant things. Readers have told me that actually the humour doesn't dilute the tragedy, but actually makes it, it more accessible, sort of easier to, to bear when the, the two are side by side. I think that makes a lot of sense. And also it um, gives her that dimension and that character that, you know, makes her more complex. Really interesting. Um, I would be curious what 
people who you had worked with, if they read it expecting to see themselves in it. Um, you know, sometimes people read themselves into things and you're like, no, actually, that wasn't you. That was, you know, so I, I would be curious. But, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see what, what they say about it. And in the meantime, could we have our final reading, please? Yes. So this is Janice, the third point of view character, who's, who's a young social worker. And in this scene, she's going for her um, her interview at the hospital or deciding whether she's going to go. A white pea against a blue background. Janice was almost level with the sign when she swung the wheel to the left and shunted into the lay-by. A horn bled as a livestock lorry loaded with lambs sped past. Janice swore, but only the Snoopy hanging from the rearview mirror heard her. Silence in the engine. She scuffled into the passenger seat and stomped out onto the verge. Fist in the air, she dropped her jaw and screamed. Traffic roared by, indifferent. The slate hillside wore the frown that had served it for millennia. A small brown butterfly danced from daisy to dandelion. Oblivious. Throat tingling, Janice clambered back into the driving seat, grabbing a water bottle from her bag in the passenger footwell on the way. By the dashboard clock, she had less than an hour to get to her appointment or to find a phone box to tell David Pargeter she'd changed her mind. She could scoff scones spread with Cumberland rum butter in a tweed tea shop, fuel for the drive home, or skip the scones and take a detour via Huddersfield and ask her dad to fix the car door. Was it really over with Stuart? Could love perish between the first and second slice of toast? She'd imagined a cottage on a dirt track, a couple of Labradors to fill the gap before babies. On summer evenings, they'd walk the dogs after work, up to the fells or down to the shore. Senseless pitching up in the middle of nowhere without him. She'd be better staying in Nottingham among familiar faces and with a wider selection of post-qualification jobs. The last year of snatched phone calls and hours on the M6 was bound to be stressful. Juggling essays, lectures and placements while Stuart grappled 200 miles away with his first grown-up job. It wasn't only geographical separation that strained the relationship. Feet in different counties, their politics had drifted continents apart. Janice wriggled in her seat, peeling her cotton trousers from her thighs. It wasn't the weather making her sweat. Officially summer, the sun was a mere phantom in the clouds. Nevertheless, she'd have felt more fragrant if she'd followed Stuart's advice and worn a skirt. But how dare he challenge her choices? You're not my mother, she'd said, although Janice's mother would never ridicule her for dressing like a student. Ten months of ironing a clean white shirt every morning 
had consolidated Stuart's conservatism. And to think she'd defended him when he'd got the job at Sellafield, Sheena would have come to the boozer in a T-shirt proclaiming, pigs can fly, the earth is flat and nuclear power is safe if Janice hadn't caught her. With a shrug, Janice secured her seatbelt and drove off. She would decide at the next roundabout whether to continue on to the interview or head south. So where can we buy Matilda Windsor is Coming Home? Matilda Windsor's Coming Home is published by Inspired Quill, which is a small independent press that's based in Derby. So it can be bought through their website or through any online outlets and in a few small independent bookshops. And it's also available through some some libraries. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest and for coming and reading to us and talking to us about the book and the characters and the writing. I really appreciate your time and it was lovely to have you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it.